Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 43, Deuteronomy chapter 31, continued. Well, as we near the completion of the book of Deuteronomy, we are witnessing the transition of Israel's leadership from Moses to Joshua. Now in chapter 31, we see the actual consecration ceremony of Joshua and of the Lord calling Moses and Joshua to the tent of meeting where Jehovah ordains Joshua as Israel's new supreme leader on earth. Now we also spent some time last week looking at the prophetic books of Ezekiel and then Revelation so that we can both understand what our attitudes should be and what God's purpose is for prophecy. And I broached this subject because there's, there's much prophecy in the final four books of Deuteronomy, even though we might not have expected to stumble across it here. Now, it was my intention to get to Deuteronomy chapter 32 in the Song of Moses today, but there's just too much to talk about. So we're going to have to wait till next week to get to that. Now, do our naturally curious minds, and in some part that curiosity is a, is a skepticism that's brought about by our inherent evil inclinations. Okay. We're not satisfied with only knowing what God has plainly revealed to us. We also sometimes demand to know what God knows and keeps only for himself. And since by definition those hidden things aren't knowable by us, at least unless God sees fit to lift veil, then you can be sure that our speculations about things that are yet future to us, whereby the details weren't ever written down for us, well, they're not going to be correct, except in the most general sort of a way. As the anecdote says, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. So we worshipers of Messiah have been terribly guilty of laying the groundwork that could cause many believers and unbelievers to miss the fulfillment of God's prophecies by our penchant for trying to guess how these future things are going to happen. And then we become so infatuated with our own ideas on the subject that they become indisputable fact. Sometimes they become doctrine written in stone. Much of the church has been teaching for centuries that Gentile believers have replaced the Jewish people as God's chosen and therefore all that was to happen through them is now going to happen through us. That's better known as replacement theology. And second, that Israel was not coming back to the land after the Roman exile. Therefore, when the Jews did come back and form a new Jewish nation barely over 60 years ago, it went almost undetected by a large portion of the church, and frankly, it remains so to this day. It was seen as really more than just a natural reaction to World War II and put into place by the UN, not God. Or worse yet, major portions of the church deny 
that the return of the Jewish people is really a fulfillment of prophecy. Rather, it's just that the Jews are the intermediate caretakers of the Holy Lands until the church takes it over. And by the way, when we were in Israel this last time, and some of us went out to a uh, military outpost, very special briefing we got, we were informed afterwards that a, the colonel who briefed us believes exactly this and absolutely believed that it was the goal of Christians that as soon as the Jews had secured the land well enough, Christians would come and kill them all. Uh, yes. And then take it from them. Yeah. Where do you think they got that idea? From us. See, this denial fulfilled prophecy is because if the return of the Jews were acknowledged, a significant portion of our cherished Christian doctrines and faith pillars would either have to be dropped or amended. Therefore, as you're all well aware, the subject of Israel is nowhere to be found on the radar screens of some of the most major Christian denominations. So before warned, we can and should look forward to what is happening and is what, uh, what is about to happen in these latter days. But don't become too enamored with some particular denominational view or a particular author's vision on the details of the tribulation timing or the sequence or at what exact moment the rapture ought to happen or the details of all the events leading up to Messiah's return or even how it's all going to play out when the actual moment of his coming occurs. Otherwise, you just might miss it. Or worse... You just might deny it when it happens. Which will set you at cross purposes to the Father. Now blindness to or denial of fulfilled prophecy is actually the focus of what will engage Moses at the end of chapter 31. And then the rather long chapter 32 that is called the Song of Moses. The words of Moses are also going to lead us right into another difficult and challenging subject today. One that's pretty touchy. The subject is, how did the two canons that form our Bible, the books of the Old and the New Testaments, become decided upon? What made them official? What brought them into being? Who made those decisions? And should one canon carry more weight than the other? Let's begin our study by rereading the last few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 31. We're going to read from verses 19 through the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 233. Therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the people of Israel. Have them learn it by heart so that this song can be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land, I swear to their ancestors flowing with milk and honey. And they've eaten their fill and they've grown fat and 
turned to other gods, serving them, despising me, broken my covenant. Then after many calamities and troubles have come upon them, this song will testify before them as a witness because their descendants will still be reciting it and will have not forgotten it. For I know how they think even now, even before I brought them into the land about which I swore. So Moshe wrote this song that same day and he taught it to the people of Israel. Adonai also commissioned Yahshua, Joshua the son of Nun, with these words, Be strong and full of courage, for you are to bring the people into Israel, into the land about which I swore to them. I will be with you. Moshe kept writing the words of this Torah in a book until he was done. And when he had finished, Moses gave these orders to the Levites who carried the ark with the covenant of Adonai. Take this book of the Torah and put it next to the ark with the covenant of Adonai your God so that it can be there to witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. Here, even while I'm still alive with you today, you have rebelled against Adonai, so how much more you'll do so after my death? Assemble for me all the leaders of your tribes and your officials so that I can say these things in their hearing calling heaven and earth to witness against them, because I know that after my death, you will become very corrupt. You'll turn aside from the way that I've ordered you. Disaster will come upon you in the Akhrit Hayamim, the world to come, because you will do what Adonai sees as evil, and you'll provoke him by your deeds. And then Moses spoke in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel the words of this song from beginning to end. This that I just read you is the prologue to the Song of Moses. No other section of Deuteronomy has been more studied, written about, revered than the Song of Moses. This is almost what we're going to read, a canon within a canon. It reveals such depth in such relatively few words that we could camp here a very long time. God instructs Moses to write a song, teach it to the people before he dies, and it's apparent that while Moses is the primary author, Joshua was either eyewitness to the creation of the song, he may even have been Moses' scribe. It's significant that this song was to be written down and then taught orally to the people of Israel. Those things that are written down always seem to carry more weight than those things that are not. That doesn't in any way mean that God's teachings that were transmitted orally weren't inspired or less valid. It is just as in the rabbinical method called Kalvomer, light and heavy, whereby we are often faced with having to decide which of God's many immutable principles have preeminence in any given situation. One criteria is that the written things of God usually carry more weight than the unwritten. Now, verse 19 says that the people are to memorize this song. Now, a song is essentially a poem set to music. Now, it's always been that the combination of words and musical notes lends itself to long-term retention. 
before the ability to write was fairly universal. Rhymes and songs were used to transmit knowledge and history from generation to generation. It works very well. I mean, how often I have heard an adult sing the ABC song under their breath as they try to remember what letter becomes comes before another one in the alphabet. I've done it myself. <laughs> or how my wife will sing a child's song to one of our grandchildren, a song that maybe she hasn't sung for her own delight in decades maybe. Yet she can remember every word of it. And equally how quickly the youngest toddlers will learn and recite a simple song and remember it maybe for the rest of their lives. It's amazing. Well, the reason for this song of Moses goes back to my opening words today. It's being created so that when these prophetic things that God is telling Israel about happen, Israel will know it was of God and not merely some natural or man-made or random event. In this way, the people can learn and have hope and not just put their heads in their hands and grieve and wonder why some calamities happened and what will become of them. In the same way, God's wrath can be used for positive discipline instead of negative destruction. Yet even the end effect of God's wrath is up to each individual because each Israelite can choose to remember this song of Moses and apply it and gain from it. Or they can just choose to forget this song, deny what God has told them, and suffer nothing but loss. Was there a time in your life when you really lived for the Lord? When the joy was overflowing and the good fruit was growing? Was there a time when your first thought every morning, the last thought before your dreams overtook you, was of God's love and mercy and His principles and His wisdom? But for some time, the joy in your life has become subdued and the days seem so long and pointless. When even praying has become a burden. Life's become dry. Things are confusing. The hours race by so fast. Yet everything's so empty. Then the Song of Moses is for you. Because Distancing yourself from God's laws and commands is what will distance you from God. And when you distance yourself from God, you distance yourself from His blessings of life and shalom. That's how it works. If what I've just proposed applies to you, then you're confronted with exactly the same choice likely for the same reasons that Jehovah gave to the Hebrews through Moses because that same pattern still applies. 
you can recognize that your situation and condition was caused by your sin and you're pulling away from the Lord and acknowledge that to Him by returning to the ways of light and truth and then accepting His discipline. Or you can deny it, thinking that it simply has to do with outside influences, a run of bad luck, the natural weight of life, that people are persecuting you. Choosing one way brings renewal and restoration. Choosing the other way, ongoing despair and spiritual blindness. A long time from now, when we get to the stories of David and Saul, this principle is at the heart of what happens to each of them. This is the choice that they made. God is not having Moses write this song and teach it to the people so that when calamity befalls them, he can say to them, See, I told you so. It's for their benefit. It's for their benefit. It's for our benefit. Please hear me. The Lord told Israel he didn't want the resulting consequences of their rebellion against him to be credited to false gods or serendipity. He wants Israel to know that he's causing the horrors they're facing. The disaster is of divine origin. He's telling them in advance what will happen. Just as the New Testament tells us in advance what will happen if we fall away from Messiah. As Paul says in Romans 11, you too will be cut off. You're not immune. Fate is a false god. Every much as were the false gods of the ancient world. Believing that our lot in life is being caused by fate is to say that Almighty God is not in control. That something else will determine our present and our destiny. That is precisely, this is precisely what Israel is being warned against. And the Lord calls this lack of trust in Him apostasy. Verse 20 explains that the terms laid out in the Song of Moses will apply after Israel has entered the land of rest, Canaan. In that wonderful land, Israel will become fat. Israel will prosper. Life will be relatively Easy. See, that's the meaning of flowing, that Hebrew idiom flowing with uh, milk and honey. But in the midst of those peak years of prosperity and blessing, Israel is going to credit false gods for their bounty. They'll thank false gods of the sky for sunshine and for rain. They'll thank Ashtoreth the Canaanite fertility goddess, for their bountiful harvests, for their many children. In doing these things, they are breaking the covenant of Moses and therefore breaking faith with Jehovah. It's a fact of life, at least it is in the West, that with prosperity comes satisfaction and complacency. That since all of our needs are met, we have no need for outside help. The more we get, the more we reduce God's role in our lives. After all, if it's our intellect 
that gets us college degrees and good jobs, our hard work and cleverness that builds our wealth, our wisdom to have regular checkups and our good fortune to live in a country of washing hospitals and doctors and medications that keep us healthy. And if we pick wisely and choose a good spouse to boot, what purpose is there for God in our lives? If we have accomplished all of these things on our own, whom else do we have to thank but our teachers, our bosses, our loan officers, and ourselves? God's place becomes that one little leftover niche that the modern age labels spirituality. One niche among many niches. It's a niche that is neither more or nor less, but it usually is less important than the others. It's a niche that can be satisfied within us by means of oh, an hour or so of our time on a Saturday or a Sunday as we go to synagogue or church. Prosperity taken out of context is a dangerous thing. In the USA, even the church has drunk the Kool-Aid, as they say. Too many modern churches measure the success by means of their material prosperity. Too many modern church leaders say that as Jesus' disciples, we can measure our spiritual success by means of our earthly prosperity. It's interesting that in Europe, the opposite is the case. In Europe, what little remains of the church views the prosperity of its members with suspicion. Therefore, the churches are poor. The building's in disrepair. Jehovah says that in time, Israel will take their prosperity out of its context, become very pleased with themselves, give credit to other gods. Instead of understanding what true prosperity is and thinking and thanking the only existing source of that kind of prosperity the God of Israel and since this perverse thinking pervades his people this kind of thinking will become the means of their end and it will be the song of Moses that will testify to heaven and earth and to all the future generations that the Lord has warned them and that what will befall them will not be because he's become unfaithful to them. Rather, it is because they have abandoned God. In fact, Adonai says in verse 22, even now, even as they're camping in Moab, getting all ready to enter the promised land, the seeds for this kind of thinking that will inevitably lead to their disastrous rebellion have already been sown in their minds and it's taking root. This isn't because of what they've been taught. Rather, it's the result of their sin natures that deny its truth and eternal nature. Verse 24 explains that Moses wrote this song and included it into what we call the book of Deuteronomy. Moses was then to take that scroll, 
give it to the Levites, the priestly tribe, and then the Levites, who were in charge of carrying the ark, were to take that scroll and place it beside, beside the Ark of the Covenant. As of this time, the Ark contained two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's budding rod, and a jar of manna. Keeping the scroll of Deuteronomy next to the Ark is a symbolic way of showing that it was built on the principles of what was inside the Ark. But in another way, the scroll of Deuteronomy was also subservient to those tablets written on by the finger of God. Now, I've shown you in earlier lessons that the God principle of loving the Lord with all of our mind, soul, and strength, every part of our being, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, forms the foundation of the ten dabar, the ten words that we call the Ten Commandments. And the ten words are the basis for all the other commandments and rules and laws that the Lord was going to establish and that, in Deuteronomy, Moses would expound upon and teach. Now, when Moses completed this work and when that song was ready, he taught it to the people of Israel, explaining that he agrees with God. Moses agrees with God that it's inevitable that after he dies, Israel's going to begin the process of falling away from God. Why is Moses so certain of this? Because it happened when he was alive, still in his leadership role. How much more it's going to happen when a person less venerated than himself, Joshua, tries to guide these stiff-necked people? Good luck. Okay, here's where I want to stop and take one of my infamous detours. Now, the reason has to do with God's instruction in verse 26 whereby the Levites are to place the Torah next to the Ark that contains the Ten Commandments. And as I said at the beginning this evening, one of our subjects will be the canon of the Bible. Or better, the two canons that together form our modern Old and New Testaments as we call them. Gosh, I don't like those terms very much. Now what this passage from Deuteronomy begs from us is to try and understand just how or if we are to place the various books and writings of Holy Scripture into some kind of a hierarchy. The symbolism of placing Deuteronomy outside of the ark, but beside it, demonstrates a firm connection between the the Ten Commandments and the book of Deuteronomy, but also it explains a clear hierarchy of merit. And never think that the church does not view Scripture that same way, or some books as having more merit than others, even in our area. Torah class exists because Christianity has no issue with the concept of prioritizing Scripture. Today, the priority is that the New Testament is all that a Christian ought to concern him or herself with. That's the priority. But even beyond that, 
The Gospels hold the highest position in the New Testament, usually followed by Paul's epistles, then Peter's and John's, and then maybe Revelation. Now the term canon simply means that the material that a collection of books contains has been agreed to as authorized by some religious body or council. So how and when did the contents of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament become a canon? Interestingly, even though it occurred at a much earlier time than the New Testament, the canon of the Old Testament's a little bit easier to trace, although not everyone would agree with all the detailed conclusions about it. The modern Christian position is that it happened about 20 years or a little bit more after the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, in other words, around 90 AD. At the little village of Yamnia, the, the story goes, some influential rabbis who had been keeping a very low profile since the destruction of Jerusalem met, and they decided upon the canon of the Old Testament. Now, this is simply not true. And frankly, it doesn't even pass the smell test. Jewish writings explain that this particular council of rabbis met for a number of reasons, and the only real issue concerning Scripture was whether to include the books of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Further, there is no decisive record or evidence that any decision was even made on the matter of those two books. All we know for certain is that these rabbis met and they argued the merit of them. That's about it. Now the discovery and reconstruction and translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls should have finally put a nail in the coffin of such a patently inaccurate assertion that it wasn't until after Christ that the canon of the Old Testament was established but still hasn't. Old traditions and agendas die pretty hard. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written 100 BC or maybe even earlier. And in them, every book of the Old Testament has been discovered, except for the books of Esther and Nehemiah. No less a historian than Josephus explains that by his era, which is around the time of Christ and then on towards the destruction of the temple, the canon of the Tanakh had long been fixed at 22 books. Now while it doesn't seem to jibe with the modern count of the Old Testament, one must grasp that several books, including Chronicles and Kings, Samuel, have since been divided into two parts by Christian editors because they were so lengthy. And then some books were divided out by literature type, like Proverbs and, and Psalms. But going back even further, we know that the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Septuagint, occurred somewhere around 250 B.C., and in it is every book of the Old Testament that we now study. Now, might there have been some ongoing discussions about whether to keep it as it was or add or subtract a, a book here or there? Absolutely. In fact, we have records of exactly that thing happening and it's 
in that same spirit that the meeting of the rabbis at Yamnia in 90 AD took place. Now, so the books of the Old Testament were in existence and regarded as the inspired word of God, Holy Scripture, by the Jewish people sometime earlier than 250 BC. We know that for sure. However, there were other Hebrew religious books as well that were in existence at that time. These additional books were not given quite the same merit as the Tanakh, but they were placed next to it. They were judged not to carry the same weight as the Tanakh, but they were just as valid in their content. Just as Deuteronomy was placed next to, but not in, the Ark, along with the Ten Commandments, so were many books that today are properly known as the Apocrypha, were placed next to the Holy Old Testament by the Israelites. But they were judged as not being of equal weight to them. They were regarded as being divinely inspired, but not on a high enough level of inspiration to consider them as Holy Scripture. So, how does this compare with the formulation of the New Testament canon as we know it today. Now before I address that, I want to point out something that might be startling. And before I do that, so that I'm not misconstrued, I want to state without equivocation that I subscribe to the New Testament being fully valid, being the inspired Word of God. That's not an issue. The Old Testament, at least most of it, is what I would call self-canonizing. In other words, the very words of those books claim Holy Scripture status. The Torah claims to be the work and words of God. And they also claim in them that Moses was told to write them down. The prophets claimed in their writings to be speaking the very words that the God of Israel instructed them to speak. Even several of the Psalms claim to be God-inspired, at the least. The New Testament, on the other hand, doesn't do that. The New Testament is not self-canonizing. The New Testament doesn't make the claim that its contents rise to the status of God-breathed. You won't find it in there. I've stated a few times that the New Testament is primarily the story of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. And then their commentary on what this means for the Jews on the one hand and for Gentiles on the other. They explain who the Messiah turned out to be. Yeshua of Nazareth. What he did. What he commanded during his ministry. How he came to be. How he died. The story of the life of Yeshua is contained in the books we call the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a little different in nature than the Gospel of John. Those three books are together called the Synoptic Gospels because they essentially tell the same story, only sometimes in slightly different order, giving slightly different emphasis 
often from a little bit different perspective. The New Testament contains another type of literature called epistles. An epistle is just a letter written by a church leader. These epistles, most of them written by Paul, deal with various disputes and problems that arose at numerous church locations around the Roman Empire. In reality, most of the letters are commentary and justification for Paul's conclusions on the matter. They are commentary on Old Testament passages, commentary on the theological consequences of Yeshua's advent, death, and resurrection. Sometimes the commentary was sorely needed because almost everything the Jewish religious authorities had decided a Messiah would do and be in no way resembled who Yeshua was and what he did. The epistles of James, half-brother of Jesus, dealt primarily with matters of the church at its headquarters in Jerusalem. James was the supreme leader of the church during Paul's day. The final type of New Testament biblical literature is expressed in the book of John to some degree, but primarily in Revelation. It's called apocalyptic literature. It deals with the revealing of end times matters. So it's prophetic in nature. It was about time's future even to its writer, John. The nature of the Gospels is also important for us to understand. First, understand that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not the names of the writers of those books. The authors were anonymous. The Gospels are somewhat like a biography of Jesus. Second, they were written at the earliest, some 20 years or so, after Yeshua's execution. And third, it was Jews who wrote them. Here, though, is where the rubber starts to meet the road. Even though it is well documented that towards the end of the first century A.D., the Gospels and some number of Paul's letters were starting to be passed around between the various church locations, but they were not considered to be Holy Scripture. They weren't even considered to be of a sufficiently inspired level to be equal in force to the Old Testament Apocrypha. The letters were certainly considered to be authoritative, meaning that they were taken to be the rules and regulations about how to handle a variety of matters within the church. They were seen no differently, however, than today how we view the bylaws set, and de- set down by any recognized Christian denomination. The records of the apostolic fathers, the generation of church leaders that immediately followed the apostles, show that under every circumstance, their Bible was the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. Nothing else. Even if it was written in Greek. And this is no matter whether that leader was a Jew or a Gentile. Writings from Origen, Ignatius, Clement, Papias, other early church leaders show us that by the first part of the 2nd century A.D., 
some of the churches located out in the Roman Empire were starting to read portions of the Gospels and portions of the epistles during their church meetings. It was customary to read Old Testament scripture during a church service. Again, what we today call the Old Testament was for them what they call the Bible. And then on occasion, they might read some of those letters, those epistles, and and a gospel. It seems that while in no way did the first generation or two of the church that started this custom hold up either the epistles or the gospels as God inspired, the fact is they were being read during a worship service more or less alongside the Holy Scriptures. And it was for this reason that the following generations gave those Gospels and those epistles a little bit more weight. Now the first recorded attempt to actually consider Paul's letters and the Gospels as Holy Scripture happened in 144 AD. A European named Marcion was the culprit. Marcion was a recent Christian convert. He was a wealthy and powerful Gentile shipping magnate. He was not a church leader, but he did write a book that struck a chord among the now thoroughly Gentile-dominated church. In his book entitled Antithesis, he put forth his personal theology and it began with the proposition that all things of Jewish origin and flavor must be eliminated from the church. Rule number one. Therefore, the church needed to create a new Christian Bible. And then once created, they should declare the Hebrew Bible as null and void for Christians. Further, Marcion declared that the Christian Bible should consist only of the Gospel of Luke plus some of Paul's epistles. But even then, it shouldn't include the entire Gospel of Luke. Only parts of it. What amounts to the first four chapters of Luke were to be eliminated because they dealt exclusively with the Jewish lineage of Christ. Now, Marcion was widely denounced for this, but he did have a substantial following. No known church body adopted his proposition, at least not in the form he suggested, and not until a lot of years passed. But now the matter gets even more complicated. See, the Roman Empire was in turmoil. And even though it was not yet a divided empire, two power centers in the empire had emerged. Rome and Byzantium. Byzantium later became known as Constantinople, and today it's called Istanbul, Turkey. Now, naturally, the power centers of the church gravitated there. Because with the proper political connections, the leader of the church in each of those political capitals gained power and visibility and validation. Thus, we have the births of the Western church, and separately, the Eastern Church. The Western Church, um, the portion of the church with its leadership based in Rome, eventually grew into the Roman Catholic Church. 
The Eastern Church, based in Byzantium, went on to become the various Christian Orthodox denominations that we know today as Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Slavic, Coptic, and several others. Protestantism eventually grew out of the Western Church, and most of us identify with one branch or another of either the Catholic or the Protestant sub-branches. The Eastern Church is another matter altogether. It does not have its birth or current power structure at all connected to either the Catholic or the Protestant churches. It's entirely separate. Now I tell you all this because when we discuss the New Testament canon, you see, there is no such thing as one church-wide universally agreed upon New Testament even today. Even though the differences aren't terribly major. And there certainly is not one church-wide universally agreed upon Bible among Christianity even today. The main difference being the order of the books and whether or if the Apocrypha is included and if it is, how many of the original 15 Apocryphal books are included, stuff like that. Well, after about 200 AD, when Marcion's ideas evolved a little bit, we begin to see that some of the Gospels and some of the Epistles were being elevated to the status of Holy Scripture. But whether any group accepted these as Holy Scripture depended entirely on not only which main branch of the church, Eastern or Western, but even which city a particular church was located in. Some churches refused to recognize anything other than the Old Hebrew Bible as Holy Scripture. Others chose which of the various Gospels and, and letters that they viewed as having sufficient merit as to be elevated to Holy Scripture status. In fact, by 200 AD, many of the books of the Apocrypha were also in the mix as among those that the various churches chose as being God-inspired. How did they choose? Church elders, bishops, formed councils, and they voted with a majority rules protocol. So, by around 220 AD, we finally see, first, certain Gospels and Epistles being elevated to Holy Scripture status. Second, therefore the concept of a New Testament is starting to be formed. Now do you grasp this? It wasn't until well into the 3rd century A.D., not until about 200 years after Christ's death, that even the concept of an additional body of Scripture, as we think of it as another testament, was seriously considered. And even then, it was only accepted in some parts of the church. Further, this newest testament was not at all conceived to be a replacement of the cherished Hebrew Bible, nor was it certainly to be held above it. It wouldn't be until the latter part of the 4th century, 367 exactly, 
that a New Testament canon was recognized as official. And even then, it was only so within the Western branch of the church. Interestingly, in that canon, every book of the Apocrypha, which the Jews revered but did not hold up as Holy Scripture, became Holy Scripture alongside the Hebrew Bible and the newly recognized New Testament. Now let me repeat that. It's really ironic. The first Gentile Christian Bible was the Hebrew Bible, right up until around 220 AD. The first addition to the Gentile Christian Bible was the books of the Apocrypha. Ironically, books revered by the Jews centuries before Christianity emerged. Now that the Apocrypha was, for the first time, given the status of Holy Scripture by Gentile Christians of all people, it would be a few more decades until a New Testament became a reality and it was finally included to form the Christian Bible that we're all familiar with today. Now, of course, in response, the Eastern Church adopted their own New Testament that accepted some of the same books that the Western did, but dismissed others, added some more, not recognized by the Roman Church. The book of Hebrews, for instance, has been added, deleted, added again, deleted again, and gone on and on and on for centuries, and still a bone of contention today. It did the same thing with the Apocrypha. The Eastern Church accepts some of the Apocryphal books as Holy Scriptures, and not others. It was actually Martin Luther in the 1500s, that first railed against any inclusion of the books of the Apocrypha in a Gentile Christian Bible, even though it had been included in it for 12 centuries. Especially since they were considered Holy Scripture. And his writings, Martin Luther's writings, plainly attest that his primary objection was because he found the books of the Apocrypha to quote him too Jewish. Just too Jewish to be in the Bible. Well, upon the Protestant Reformation, some books of the Apocrypha were removed from the Bible. And with the Geneva Bible, they were moved to a separate section of the Bible and then given lesser weight than the Old and New Testaments. Very similar to what the Jews had done with the Hebrew Bible and the Apocrypha 2,000 years earlier. Now here's the thing I'd like you to take from all this tonight. It's so terribly ironic that in the last 500 years the church has first removed the Apocrypha and then, for all practical purposes, the Old and Original Testament of God from the Bible. Oh, it's still there, but in name only. The Tanakh has been relegated to a similar status within the modern church as the Jews originally gave to the Apocrypha, a flawed testament of lesser inspiration. Now the irony is, of course... <laughs> that it is only 
the Torah and the prophets that actually claim divine inspiration. The New Testament doesn't. Further, for us to seriously subscribe to the notion that every reference to the term scripture by the New Test, by a New Testament author, is to include his own personal writings is simply nonsensical on its face. Because there wouldn't be any thought of elevating the status of any of those writings to being inspired of God for over 200 years after those authors died. From the moment the Torah and the prophets were created, they were self-declared Holy Scripture. There is no evidence whatsoever, none, that a New Testament author thought he was writing something that would someday be considered as additional or a replacement testament. Now the purpose for today's detour is not in any way to discount or question the divine nature of the New Testament. goes without saying. Rather, it's to help us see that the New Testament writers and the early church never for a moment doubted the continuing relevance, validity, and authority of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Never. The Torah and the Hebrew Bible formed the foundation of the Christian faith. Yeshua was the fulfillment of the prophecies contained in the Hebrew Bible. It was only several groups of Gentile church leaders who centuries later ordained man-made doctrines and rules, all of them vehemently anti-Jewish, that turned the Bible on its head and made the original testament as questionable and the newest testament as irrefutable. I'd humbly suggest that just as Yeshua is Messiah and is God, yet he is also subservient to the Father. Jesus constantly prayed to the Father. He asked for his will to be done. And his famous prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer memorializes that example. We're told that Yeshua is now in heaven placed next to, beside the Father at his right hand. This mysterious relationship among the Godhead sets the pattern that we see in Deuteronomy whereby the Torah, which is the word of God, just as Yeshua is the word of God, was laid next to the ark, but was in a real sense subservient to the ark's <coughs> contents. Therefore, I further suggest that just as the divine Torah is symbolically laid beside its foundation, the Ten Commandments that reside in the ark, so should the divine New Testament be laid beside its foundation, the Torah. The Torah did not replace the Ten Commandments any more than the New Testament replaced the Hebrew Bible. 
Okay, for us to suggest the Torah is subservient to the New Testament, or worse, that the newer has abolished the older, is to break the command of our Savior and perhaps his most important sermon to the people, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.17 Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. Don't think it. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that in heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a ute or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do so, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them to others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Next week we'll start Deuteronomy 32 for real.